X-ray. We're talking to Lori Wimmer, candidate for House District 36. Lori Wimmer, longtime advocate and lobbyist for the Teachers Union, now a candidate, not for the first time, but for the first time in a while, and running for the state House of Representatives is one of the many races that we're covering here on X-Ray. Lori, how you doing? I'm doing great. Now, I want to start by looking into the endorsement process. You and I have spoken before, and when we spoke before, I asked you what made you the candidate that ought to be supported in your district. And I believe your answer was, well, I'm the real progressive candidate in the race. Is that a fair summation? Uh, Yes, and I'm also the most experienced candidate in the race. How has that played out in the endorsement process? Because I want to dig into that a little bit. We're going to be interviewing a lot of candidates. And, yes, some of that I'm going to ask some of the same questions. But I also want to dig into new things to let listeners know, kind of get a window into how this stuff works. How has that played out in organizational endorsements? Well, it has been my honor to receive uh, the endorsement of more than 22 organizations, as well as that of U.S. Senator Jeff Merkley, former Governor Barbara Roberts, Attorney General Ellen Rosenblum, 11 members in the current legislature, and a number of local elected and former legislators. So uh, I have swept uh, the endorsements for most of the major organizations that do weigh in in Democratic primary races. And what does that process look like? Let's start with two endorsements, setting aside uh, for just a second the individual endorsements, like Merkley and Barbara Roberts. What are some of the organizational endorsements? Also setting aside public labor, because you kind of came from the public labor world, and so that maybe maybe there's some to learn there. But besides those, what are a couple of endorsements you're proudest of? I would say Planned Parenthood Advocates of Oregon and Oregon Rao are and WINPAC, uh, because before I was with the Oregon Education Association, I was executive director of the Oregon Commission for Women, and before that, I was a, a counselor in a women's health clinic. And so my dedication to uh, the issues confronting women, girls, children, families has been as long-standing as my union cred. And so it was my honor uh, to receive the endorsement of those leading organizations that identify uh, those kinds of values as well. What was the endorsement process like for Planned Parenthood? What was the hardest question on the questionnaire? Or what was the toughest hurdle to overcome? Or was it just like, hey, we know Lori, we think it's going to probably be Lori. Let's, let's set aside any pretense of a process. Well, I don't know if there was any question, to be quite candid, that was difficult for me to answer. My enthusiasm and passion for those issues has been longstanding, and so it was a fairly natural process for me to just uh, answer from my heart as well as my head. Uh, The Planned Parenthood process was really interesting because all candidates seeking their endorsement needed to come in for uh, training as well on uh, messaging, service, their mission, etc. It was really helpful, and I found it a compelling way to engage with candidates just because their mission as an organization is so strong and so well-respected. Uh, and it was an honor to be a part of that process as well. But it was different from how most organizations offer. So they did it kind of like a candidate school? I went to the candidate school. It was a it was a one afternoon training kind yeah. of thing. 
And then you come out of that. How many other people are participating in that training with you? Are you the only one invited or they give everybody a chance? They held several of them uh, at different locations in the state for candidates downstate. I was in a room with, I would say, probably 15 or 20 other candidates, some of them incumbent legislators running. Any of your opponents? Yes, one of my opponents was in the room. And so you guys are sort of facing off. You're in this room. You're going through this training. Presumably there's some chance to speak, and so you have a chance to see how your opponent is communicating. What did you learn from that that you think now still differentiates you from the other folks in your race? Interesting question. I would say that uh, the, uh, the approach one takes is either based on one's values or one's pre-rehearsed message points. I tend not to be very pre-rehearsed. Uh, I speak from the heart. Well, that's boring. So... Uh, <laughs> it's boring. I mean, everybody's pre-rehearsed a little bit, but it gets boring. Exactly. And I also feel it's in- inauthentic. Yeah. So um, that's just never been my style. And so it's fun to observe other people's styles. Let's just there. I think I understand what you're saying. When is a time? What about envir- environmental organizations, environmental organizations endorsing your race? Uh, they chose not to. They decided to stay out, which was a disappointment to me because that's another issue I care deeply about and would have uh, really cherished that endorsement. But they decided to wait out the primary. Some organizations do that. There are a number of other groups that uh, all of us were hoping would weigh in uh, who also stayed out. And the process generally, so Planned Parenthood did it with this training thing. And I just know that there's some listeners who may think about running for office at some point, or might run a campaign, and uh, might just be curious. They might want to serve on a board of one of these organizations or on a political committee of one of these organizations. So typically, let's say League of Conservation Voters, right, the leading uh, environmental, sort of the political arm of the environmental movement in Oregon. Presumably, they what, send you a questionnaire. You fill out that questionnaire. How long is that questionnaire? How long does it take you? Who helps you with the answers? And then you sit down for interview. Is, is that roughly the process? That's roughly the process, yes. Uh, many of the organizations had very deep dive questions that, that go well beyond the surface. Uh, you know, most progressives are going to say that they support uh, immediate uh, responses to our climate emergency. But that's just the tip of the iceberg for OLCB, for example. They want to know how you feel about water policy, how you feel about forestry policy, how you feel about uh, fossil fuels in general, uh, a, a wide range of issues. And so I have, with all of these questionnaires, and many organizations had, some of them went to uh, 11 single-space type pages worth of answers long, 35 questions one of them was. Uh, I treated them all as term papers and did a lot of research, did a lot of writing, mostly uh, it came all out of my head and my heart, as I said, uh, with the benefit of the research. I needed to do to really be thoughtful about my answers. Um, But in many cases, I had enough uh, with the issues through my 30 years of working as a public policy advocate that it wasn't as challenging for me, say, as it might be for someone who is very new to this world of public policy. Yeah, you kind of know what they're looking for. You kind of know some semblance of the issues. How much of it, and I know it's going to be a hard question to answer candidly, but how much when you're answering it, are you answering it with an eye to who's grading the paper. Because on one hand, it's a research paper. But on the other hand, the set of professors you're turning into 
is not, you know, looking for a both sides balanced analysis. They are looking for somebody who will answer lockstep the way they want to hear. And if you don't answer lockstep the way they want to hear, generally speaking, they'll prefer somebody who does. And every time, you know, if you don't get 100% on the paper, if you get a 95, well, you might lose to somebody who gets a 96. So how do you think, think about that? Well, I think that it goes back one step farther, and that is I've got questionnaires from a number of organizations that I would have absolutely no intention of the questionnaire because my values do not align with theirs. Let's just start right there. I filled out the questionnaires and sought the endorsement of those organizations that align with my values and the values of the, the voters of District 36. So National Rifle Association, Oregon Right to Life, Life. You, you don't turn in those you don't turn in those questionnaires. No, and I did just get the NRA's offer this week, as well as several other more conservative organizations, and I have opted not to uh, respond to them because. How common is that? Tell them what they want to hear. Right, no, I get it. You'd say, you'd you'd give a bunch of answers that would be the equivalent of, hey, go jump in a lake, and that, you know, (laughs) maybe not a good use of anybody's time. But how common is that these days, do you think? How often in contested Democratic primaries, when the winner of the National Rifle Association or the Oregon Right to Life endorsement, that would be tantamount to losing the race, right? If you got the NRA endorsement in the district where you're running in Portland, Oregon, you would lose the Democratic primary for sure. Is everybody else doing the same way? Roughly speaking, do most people actually just not reply at all? Are there what percentage? If you're going to hazard a guess, I'd say 95 percent of the candidates out there are going to ignore those questionnaires. It's just common sense. Uh, there are, of course, always outliers. I can remember decades ago, one incumbent legislator who had a change of heart about a very important issue to others happened to be about the choice issue. And as an incumbent legislator who had actually taken money from pro-choice organizations, he then, uh, in I think four days before the election, announced a change of heart. And so uh, what happened in those uh, remaining four days was a very heavy effort to make sure voters knew that. And he actually was defeated by uh, a, a challenger to his incumbency. What are the – are there any organizations that – are sought particularly for endorsement by members of both parties. And by members of both parties, I don't mean in a general election, right? Well, yeah, both the both the Republican candidate and the Democratic candidate would like a newspaper endorsement, for instance. But are there any that are sought by both? What kind of endorsements are sought by both Democrats in Democratic primaries and Republicans in Republican primaries? Hmm. I would say that, for example, the organization I've uh, been pleased to represent for 23 and a half years, the Oregon Education Association has some uh, Republican um, incumbents and challengers or open seat candidates who do seek uh, the education endorsement because in a perfect world, education would be a nonpartisan issue. Everybody should care about our public schools being funded and high quality and uh, offer opportunity for all. Uh, And so there are a number of uh, candidates who do seek the Oregon Education Association's endorsement, and a number of them who receive it. I remember Bob Which Jensen. surprises people, by the way. Yeah, no, I remember Bob Jensen got the OEA and the SEIU endorsement. OEA is Oregon Education Association. That's a teacher's union. The uh, SEIU, Service Employees International Union, that's, uh, I think, Oregon's largest uh, public uh, public union. And Bob Jensen, Republican from Eastern Oregon, won those endorsements. 
And they didn't. They weren't as toxic in a in a Republican district as say a National Rifle Association endorsement would be in a Democratic primary. Would be my estimation. And maybe I'm going too deep in this. I, I am interested in, and I think other people would be it'd be edifying for folks to understand the endorsement process. But disabuse me of this in a Democratic primary, in a state legislative race, when not everybody knows who their state legislator is. How important do you view endorsements to be? I think endorsements are incredibly important, and here's why. Nobody has a chance to actually speak face-to-face on one or more occasions with every single person who will turn out to vote. And so most people I know turn to their voters' pamphlets to take a look at who is uh, endorsing each candidate or ballot measure or what have you, and that serves as a proxy to a lot of people for who, or good guidance anyway, for who would be best uh, to vote for for themselves. And I've heard that many a time from just real people who aren't involved in politics that, well, if Jeff Merkley likes someone, that's a really good indicator for me that this is a good person to vote for. For example, that's when I've gotten on the doorstep in my own race, as a matter of fact. When was a time you have disagreed with liberal doctrine? Well, I would say that the most recent, I wouldn't say it's liberal doctrine. I would say it's individual decisions I've disagreed with. Uh, I've uh, disagreed with some of the actions on the public employee retirement system changes that have either been proposed or passed. And, uh, you know, my members have disagreed with that. Most public employees have felt um, that those have gone too far and have broken promises that were constitutionally guaranteed under Oregon's contract law. So but you were on the side, you were on the side, presumably, of the public employee union member, uh, or am I getting that wrong? Like you were saying that the that the yeah. move, that the compromise move by Democrats with Republicans to uh, chip away a little bit at some of the retirement benefits, that you're critical of that move. I was critical of it both as bad policy and bad politics. Yeah. Alike. Uh, because uh, when you say on a questionnaire, we were just talking about endorsement questionnaires, I will never betray your trust. I will never vote to de- you know, diminish your benefits. They've already been dem- diminished significantly over the years twice. Uh, we, I, you won't get that from me. And then you turn around and do it. That's a broken promise. It feels like a betrayal. And it was unnecessary fiscally. There are other things they could have done that would have had as uh, grade and effect, if not greater. This is all about politics. I remember so that that's just an unfortunate way to conduct business. Sure. I remember a conversation with the former chief of staff to uh, Senator Ron Wyden, and he said, Jeff, wait until you have to go against your real base. Wait till you have to wait, wait until you take a vote or prioritize a position that is at odds with not just some people that you're sometimes in coalition or even often in coalition with, but really at the core of who helped elect you. And he was, I think, had in mind, he didn't say this, but I think he had in mind uh, some of Wyden's, uh, Wyden on, on, I think it was probably Medicare Part B, and given his background as a senior advocate, I think that was what was in his mind. And that's kind of what I'm getting to. You disagreeing with Tina Kotek, who made a deal on on uh, on PERS, I, I would sort of expect that you'd be disappointed that deal would be made. I'm wondering about a time that you have or a time that you could anticipate 
having to disagree with your base? Well, I, I don't know that I will always agree with every single thought that every single person in my base would ever have. But let me try this from a different angle. Sure. Oregon's legislative process used to be a little bit more innocent than it's evolved into in recent years. I've been there for 30 years, and I have watched the occasional, uh, let's say, hostage-taking or transactional, uh, you know, I'll vote for this if you vote for that kind of thing, or deal-making, if you will. But it was the rare exception, not the way most bills passed or failed. People voted their conscience, they voted their base, they voted their constituents' desires, they voted their values. Now, on significant key issues that are remotely controversial, they all end up in this horse trading arena toward the end. And there's high pressure, no time to go back out and talk to your constituents, no time to do anything but act or react. And I'd like to approach my candidacy and my service, should I be elected, from a different perspective, which is to say, if you're coming in to talk to me about a vote trade or a consequence if I don't vote the way you want me to, conversation stops at the store right now. I will not be that kind of uh, voter. I mean, on most things, uh, the caucus needs to work together as a team, and I get that. But if there is no longer going to be space for people to vote their conscience on key votes that are controversial or that they have a stake in and have said so from the beginning, as I have when I've identified myself and my values, then uh, then that's not a process where we're representing our constituents anymore or where we can stand up and ask people to trust us. And I want to restore trust and integrity to that work, and, I, and the buck stops with me. If I give up my values at any point, then it's time to leave the legislature, not enter it. And so... Uh, I'm, I'm hoping to approach this a different way. And I think we just need to be reminded that we're there to serve a greater good and not just uh, the political expediency of the moment. I appreciate th- that answer. And you are dancing with this question, because to be clear, a lot of the people that you know I'm hoping will listen to this don't live in your district. Right. There will be people who do. But you are not just arguably the most experienced candidate in your race you are one of the most and and i'm not even going to say that you are because i want to give your uh, i want to give your counterparts your opponents a chance to make their case too but as i look at it one of the most experienced candidates for the legislature that ever runs right if you look at number of years served uh number as a as an advocate uh number of days spent in legislative chambers lobbying bills number of bills helped to pass or defeat i mean it's very rare and you can disabuse me of this but it's probably a compliment so you're probably not gonna uh it's very rare for somebody of your depth of experience to uh to have that depth of experience before running and serving the legislature for the first time uh, and so I think it's an interesting window to the overall process. Right? I think talking to you could be interesting to people, regardless of where they live, as a window into what it's like to run and what it's like to advocate and, and imagine serving, uh, even if they don't even if they don't live in your district. The and what I'm trying to get to a little bit is with so much alignment, with so much uh, the term that Ezra Klein and others use is polarization. I don't think it's polarization because I don't think it's, it's equitable polls. I don't think there's uh, extreme, extremism is even. But 
there has been a significant divide. Gone are the days where you have a bunch of rural Democrats and a bunch of urban Republicans elected to the Oregon legislature. And so figuring out, as we just saw from the walkout, figuring out how you create a supermajority's consensus for hard stuff, not just for you know an end budget compromise, but for hard stuff, I'm really interested in. And how, how, did, and how are you thinking about that? First of all, feel free to give any comment on the walkout. I'm, presumably you'll whack the Republicans for doing it. Right. Well, I think once we get to the point of walkout, the patient is in a pretty diseased state, and that is where we are, not just with our pandemic, but with our political pandemic, if I can make a a metaphor here. Uh, We have gone so far off the cliff of uh, what I was saying just a moment ago about remembering what our values are uh, and being so transactional about our politics that when you have an uneven playing field with one party in power and the other not, you end up with desperation measures that then become normalized just as a tool over and over again. And the only way to put that genie back in the bottle is to begin at the beginning before session uh, begins next year. I think there should be uh, some kind of retreat. Uh, I think that there needs to be some sort of... of uh, revisiting of processes, I certainly think that it's retreat a, of all the members, Democrats and Republicans, or something yes, different than that. I would do it. I I might start with a uh, a two day retreat of all the Democrats from both chambers, not just one caucus, but both both sets of Democrats, both sets of Republicans in one retreat, and then have uh, maybe a smaller group uh, go on a bipartisan retreat uh, uh, secondarily for a couple days, and. And talk about ground rules and talk about whether or not we really want to blow up every session or we want to serve. And what does that look like? Uh, I think the citizens have made it pretty clear in polling that I've seen that they do not approve of using the nuclear option every time we don't get our way. Um, and so they'd like to at least see consequences. Uh, so there are a number of ways to approach that. But if there's Do you think we should sense, get rid? Do you think the state should get rid of the state Senate? Get rid of the what? The, the state, state Senate. Senate. Abolish the state Senate. No. But what I do think is that we should make sure that if uh, we go to extreme measures, that we be ready to accept the consequence of our actions. Actions without consequence are, are just tools. And the actions taken in a walkout should be rare. And they should be warranted for one big thing once every blue moon not session after session or multiple times in a given session. Um, and so if there are consequences for the behavior, then I think it will be rarely used. Another uh, thing that could be done... So, but, but hold on. What kind of consequence? I want to get back to abolishing the Senate. I know it's a tongue-in-cheek question. I'm borrowing it from a Sightline Institute who is arguing in favor of a unicameral legislature with multi-member districts as a, as, in part as a modest proposal, a swifty and modest proposal, but in part, I think, seriously meant intended as well. But you said consequences. What kind of consequences? What should happen to a bunch of state senators who say walking out is the new filibuster? If we don't like it enough, we're going to flee to Idaho. What should be the consequence? Well, first of all, they shouldn't get their base pay plus per diem. Per diem is your expenses. So cut serving, their pay. And if you're not serving, you shouldn't get them. Yep. Uh, so start with a cut in pay. You should perhaps also uh, issue a fine for every day they're out. And perhaps even uh, as uh, one of the proposed ballot measure initiatives would suggest, 
uh, forfeit your right to serve in the successive legislative session. That would be a big incentive. I mean, I could imagine it not being a scarlet letter, but a red badge of courage for somebody who walks out to say, ha, I know I'm not going to get paid, but I got to do it anyway, because that's how much I care about our ability to continue to pollute or whatever. Like, so <laughs> I, like I, I could imagine that being a campaign line. But not being able to run again for somebody who is thinking about how much power they wield, that's a real thing. That's a real thing. And I think that if the principle is so grave that you're willing to sacrifice your service, well, then maybe you should walk out and and do that and be willing to stand up for the consequences, because that's part of the bargain, isn't it? I remember studying Thoreau and Emerson when I was in uh, high school or college, and you know, I think that the line when uh, Thoreau was thrown in jail for not paying his taxes because he didn't support the Mexican-American War, Emerson comes to visit him and says, why are you in there? And Thoreau says, the question really is, why are you not? The, so no, consequence is part of protest. And if you're not willing to stand up for the consequence, the protest rings hollow to me. I want to ask about process changes, and this is getting me getting nerdy in a different way. And I know not everybody cares about this the way I do, but let me make the case for why it's important. Since the big sort, since the days, let's call it in the 70s, where you did have significant ideological and geographic dissonance within political parties, whereas now you have uh, almost all of the dissonance, they call it polarization, I call it dissonance, all of the dissonance betwixt parties rather than within parties. You don't have a bunch of you had had genuinely liberal Republicans, not just like moderate Republicans, but genuinely liberal Republicans and genuinely hardcore segregationist Democrats, like not long before my lifetime. The current reality is now kind of like that. And it does seem we're seeing it at the federal level. I think we're seeing it at the state level. It is making it harder to find supermajorities to build consensus. One argument is it doesn't matter if the Republicans do that kind of stuff, just beat them. If Mitch McConnell's going to be like that nationally, just beat him and eventually just get 60 Democrats in the U.S. Senate and assume that one party will be able to get it right for long enough. I am also, though, more interested maybe than ever in considering process changes. Are there process changes other than just punishing Republicans who go away or Democrats who went away? Are there process changes that you think we should more seriously consider? What's the most radical one, whether it's star voting or rank choice voting or some new kind of campaign campaign finance reform or multi-member districts, any kind of process change that you would champion or even consider? You know, I think that the process is really often thrown under the bus as being somehow broken, and I don't think that's the case. So apologize for not playing along, but I really do feel that it is about a different kind of thing, and that is about what has happened to our narratives and our public discourse and our sense of control and power and exploitation of both fear and hope, frankly. Uh, And I think that that's just gotten out of hand, aided and abetted by an unnatural uh, amount of money in political processes. And money and power are everything in all discussions where there is struggle. And when, when we ended up with the Citizens United decision at the federal level, Uh, It was sort of game over in that regard. And what happened at the national level has trickled down into just about every state. And so we have a lot of people who are uh, who are confused by the influence of money and how that shapes messages 
and how that shapes their very public opinion to the extent that they have one around the key issues of the day. Because, uh, and I would say that the internet owns a little bit of this too, because it's garbage in, garbage out sometimes. There's, and we all know about uh, the Cambridge Analytical uh, Analytica piece. We know about all the different ways we can be manipulated with information. So power, money, and information uh, constraints, I would say, because, you know, the death of newspapers across the country has also meant that we are um, having a difficult time discerning good information from bad, and we all have been fooled. So you anticipated my question, and I didn't want to interrupt, which was, you said, well, I don't think the processes are the problem as much as uh, what's infected the processes. And I was going to say, well, what's the root of that infection? You offered two things. One, how much money there is in the system and maybe from what sources. And the other was information. So what would you do about that root? What are processes? We don't have to use the term process. I'll still use it. What are process things we ought to do to get either of those things? Well, I think that that the way we talk, the way we allow money to uh, uh, invade politics is problematic. And were I clean, I certainly would reverse course on uh, the, the Supreme Court decision in Citizens United. That would be a start, but it's certainly only a start. Uh, we have a lot to do to unwind this very difficult problem we have. Uh, I also think that people are... Uh, Operating out of fear, and uh, when I say fear, I mean in terms of their personal lives, you know, that we have a huge income inequality gap, it's growing larger, people don't know who to blame for that, but there, there are people who are um, responding out of that fear of the unknown of what's to happen to their families if our one health care crisis away from bankruptcy, or if they lose their job, or if they end up in a divorce situation or something. And and those are folks who are very vulnerable right now. And what we need to do is, I think, a lot more modest than wholesale system change, which is kind of pie in the sky. People want to see what kinds of things we can actually accomplish. And one of those has to do with closing the income inequality gap that has widened so greatly in Oregon in recent years. Yeah, when I argue with myself on this stuff, and I am admittedly a democracy nerd, and actually the ban the Senate uh, argument came out of uh, out of that, uh, an interview for that show, The when I argue with myself and say, well, maybe if the only thing you did, if you had one magic wand and the only thing you did was reinvigorate the middle class, shrink not just income inequality, but wealth inequality, that, yeah. that might be the thing that saved democracy more importantly than democracy reforms. I tend to be a both-and person. Uh, Person on that front, uh, should the mayor have who's running for election? Should he be? A, should he have abided by the five hundred dollars limits that were passed by voters in both the county and the city by eighty nine and eighty seven percent, respectively? You know, I really don't want to get into uh, critiquing other people's. Uh, what would you have done? Uh, I'm not certain. I, I think that I would have had to have had the full understanding of what the circumstances were. And I, I really think in this case, I'd rather focus more on state level politics. That's fair. Own. That's fair. It, the segue to the statewide, statewide politics. And then I want to give you a chance to say anything you want. And I hugely appreciate you participating in this conversation and you allowing me to talk about things, not just about, you know, the, uh, not not only about the vagaries of each individual particular district, but the, some of the process stuff that is facing us overall. 
there will be before the legislature an argument about limits to campaign contributions, almost certainly, provided voters approve of the referral that clarifies the Constitution to allow there to be campaign finance limits. It's going to come across your debts what those limits ought to be. And there'll be folks who say, hey, the limits ought to be whatever is, you know, low enough to appease voters and like good government nerds, but not stringent enough that it really changes the process. How do you imagine engaging in that debate? And could you imagine uh, agreeing to pretty darn high limits, something that doesn't change the process that much or doesn't change the money and politics problem that much? Do you imagine yourself championing uh, sort of middle class level limits, something like 500 bucks, 250 bucks, 1000 bucks, rather than like federal limits, which, of course, have not cured Congress? Well, you know, this pandemic has given us a good window on what happens when you cannot fundraise and when you cannot go door to door and when you cannot have the level of engagement most campaigns are used to. Uh, And I think about what it is I would do if I didn't have the opportunity to undertake the expensive uh, proposition of at least mailing people. Uh, and creating some sort of ability to dialogue with them through uh, the use of uh, alternative mechanisms. Right. And I know that given that particularly down-ballot races are already kind of a rare species in terms of interest level of most people who are just laying out their daily lives trying to have one, <laughs> getting attention of people in, in order to make sure you are able to make a telling case for your candidacy is very difficult under the best of circumstances. And then add to that the fact that, at least in Oregon, the state legislature is not uh, something that's a very lucrative thing to do. So you work your buns off to get elected to something that will pay you about $25,000 a year, which will you know, uh, not exactly a, a, uh, a great wage. And so it means that a lot of people who might otherwise be great public servants will never elect to even attempt to serve. So uh, I believe that if we're going to have campaign finance limits, we have to have ways for people to be able to get their message out so voters are able to so say, public financing. this is what I care about. So uh, that, you know, if, if I am elected and go to Salem to represent them in the state capitol, I want to serve them well, but I have to know what they think in order to do that. And if I can't engage with voters because I've been proscribed by a tiny little budget that doesn't enable that that outreach. So you're talking you're talking about public financing. You're talking about public financing of elections or something else. Well, it would have to be, yeah. uh, and maybe also better salaries so that you have a wider uh, electoral candidate pool to choose from, and not just people who are on the verge of retirement or. Uh, otherwise fairly wealthy. Uh, Are you staying safe? We've got to wrap. I know we're over time. You've been generous with your time. The uh, uh, Are you staying safe? Are you able to manage a campaign in the context of a global pandemic? I'm personally honoring what our leaders have asked us to do, which is stay home and stay healthy. You can't go door to door in the middle of the no, coronavirus. I had to suspend all field activities that involve human contact, cancel all events and fundraisers, you know, all of those things that one must do because far more important than whether I win or lose, whether or not we come out of this with maximum number of people being healthy and safe. And so I feel that as a communitarian, my first value is to make sure that my community is 
uh, protected, and I have to do my part in that regard and yep. let the chips fall where they may. Lori, um, who are you and why you're running? Normally, we start with that question. Let's finish with that as we wrap. Who are you and why you're running? Uh, well, I am a 30-year public policy advocate representing values that are progressive, uh, representing the people in the Oregon legislature, both uh, in terms of uh, issues around health care access, family leave, domestic violence, etc., and public education, and improving uh, also our tax system. I believe in closing the wealth and income inequality gaps. I think we can do that because our budget and our tax code are both moral documents, and what we prioritize is what we fund. And I know, because I've been the chair of the Revenue Coalition since 2001, that there are things we can do to make our system fair and to make sure that our families and our communities thrive. I'm in it to win it so that I can do so for Oregon families. Laura Wimmer, thank you so much. Thank you for your time. You're listed X-Ray. I'm Jefferson Smith. This is part of the Vision 2020 series. And radio is yours.